Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Welcome to the final episode of our in-depth exploration of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy. I am your host and guide, Reverend Eric. Since this is the final episode of the series, don't start listening here. Catch up on all of the episodes in this series on the podcast's website at arnamancy.com Agrippa. We have been all over occult philosophy and explored everything from its historical contexts to its complex cosmology and fascinating theories on divine light. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the influences that occult philosophy has had in the nearly 500 years since its original publication. In all of the previous episodes, I have suggested chapters in occult philosophy that could be read to accompany your listening experience. But not this time. My guests and I will be mentioning quite a few books that have resulted from Agrippa's influence, however, and I will make sure to list them in the show notes. They will make excellent additions to your winter reading list. Now, as we know, Three Books of Occult Philosophy was published from 1531 to 1533, and then, just a couple years later, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa passed away in Grenoble in 1535. However, his story does not stop there. About 30 years after his death, the fourth book of occult philosophy appeared. While Agrippa's name was associated with this book, his student Johann Weyer denounced it as not genuine. It remains, however, a remarkable volume. It is packed with ritual instructions and is usually packaged with other famous occult works like the Heptameron and the Arbitel. Douglas Batchelor and I discussed this book at length in a different episode, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. In 1651, over a hundred years after Occult Philosophy was first published, the first English translation was printed in London. The translator was identified only by the mysterious initials J.F., and there is some contention over his identity. The two leading contenders are John French, an English physician, and somebody named J. Freak. This translation inc includes an introductory poem by Eugenius Philolathes, titled An Anconium on the Three Books of Cornelius Agrippa, Knight. This is a nom de plume used by the famous Welsh Rosicrucian Thomas Vaughan, who is notable for being the first to translate the Rosicrucian manifestos Fama Fraternitatis Rosicrucis and Confessio Fraternitatis into English. However, this was not the end of occult philosophy's adventures. In 1801, the English magician and ballooning alchemist Francis Barrett 
published a tome of ritual magic called The Magus, or Celestial Intelligencer. This book is notorious for taking much of its contents from occult philosophy. However, Barrett's legacy is also not to be taken for granted. He influenced both Eliphas Levy and Edward Bulwer-Lytton, thus becoming a major contributor to the 19th century occult revival. In addition, a talisman drawn directly from the Magus was carried by none other than Joseph Smith, founder of the Latter-day Saints, you know, the Mormons. A while back, I interviewed scholar R.A. Priddle about Barrett and the Magus. Let's listen to what he has to say. Okay, so uh, the Magus is, uh, when I first tell people like what it is that, I, that my thesis is about, it's a textbook of occult philosophy. And it's probably, I think it's the first textbook that is like a curriculum for people to study magic and learn about uh, the Western esoteric traditions insofar as 19th century society knew and was aware of. So that's, that's sort of where, what the book is and then uh, how it was treated and where it came from. uh, Then that's a story unto itself on like on how that, that all, that all arrived. Yeah, uh, Ronald Hutton had once had had called the, this period uh, between, let's say, 1610, 1620, and like 1890 as sort of like an aviance of magic. Like everything was sort of in decline. Like Keith Thomas has, uh, you know, in his Religion and Decline of Magic. Like th- this was sort of the, the 18th century, the late 18th century, early 19th century. The argument generally was that this period was devoid of magical practice. And that sort of like was part of the reason why I wanted to study this particular textbook, because when it comes to the study of magic, everything is either early modern. You can find tons and tons of monographs on cunning folk, early, uh, early witch hunts, all that stuff. And then you can find lots of stuff, uh, you know, Aleister Crowley, Austin Osmond Spare, A.E. Waite. Huge amounts of literature, but then when you get to <laughs> uh, the late 18th century, early 19th century, it seems like there's a hole that no one really, like, no one really wanted to talk about, except for I think uh, Jocelyn Godwin in his book uh, *The Theosophical Enlightenment*, and he, but it, his is a very sort of um, broad view of Europe in general during this time period. That's that's sort of why I, I found the this period sort of interesting because you had you had your Agrippas and your John Dees. And, and, and your Edward Kellys and all these great sort of jiggle figures in history. And then it's just sort of like evaporates a little bit, but it doesn't really evaporate. It just becomes less, less socially convenient. By the late 19th century, occult philosophy had found its way into the corpus of magical sources used by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Agrippa's place as the godfather of modern ritual magic was thus cemented. In 1915, L.W. DeLawrence published The Great Book of Magical Art, Hindu Magic, and East Indian Occultism, which, you guessed it, plagiarized occult philosophy once again. DeLawrence made his version of occult philosophy seem more mysterious and Eastern by replacing some of the Hebrew names with the pseudo-Sanskrit. Today's occultists can find Agrippa's influence across the entire breadth of modern Western esotericism. One excellent example is that his material shows up in books filled with tables of correspondences, like Aleister Crowley's 777 and Stephen Skinner's The Complete Magician's Tables, which tend to be frequently consulted by contemporary practitioners. 
But hold on. That is not the end of the story. We left out a really important part. What happened with occult philosophy in the 120 years between its original publication and the 1651 English translation? Nothing? Of course not. I am just saving the best for last. Agrippa's work was showing up all over the place during this time. For example, in the 1580s, none other than John Dee himself leaned repeatedly on Agrippa in his Mysteriorum Libri Quinque, or Five Books of Mystery. And of course, Giordano Bruno used occult philosophy as one of his major sources in his book, De Magia, which is all about magic. Longtime listeners will be familiar with Scott Gosnell, a frequent guest of this podcast. He's the translator of Giordano Bruno's collected works, which includes De Magia. Scott has new translations coming out this year, including Trithemius's Steganographia, as well as a new hardback edition of Bruno's De Umbris Idearum, both coming from Windcastle Press. Scott is also on the board of Emergence Benefactors, a research foundation dedicated to emergent experiences resulting from meditation, psychedelic experiences, prayer, transcendence, and other factors, which sounds really cool. I had a great conversation with Scott about Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's influence on Giordano Bruno, and I invite you to get a fresh beverage, nestle into your podcasting nook, and come along for the ride. So Giordano Bruno was uh, born in about uh, 1548, so that puts him a couple of generations post-Agrippa. Uh, he was a, a Dominican friar and priest. He uh, was also most famous for being both a heretic and a philosopher and a developer of the classical art of memory. Um, he was interested in magic, just like Agrippa was. He was uh, a person who wandered all over Europe, uh, never quite finding a home. And then at the end of his life, was arrested by the Roman Inquisition and burned to the stake for a variety of reasons, including his heretical beliefs. Uh, Bruno wrote a lot, and we were sort of discussing this before we started recording. His writing can be pretty um, flowery and dense. Uh, you, you sort of compared him to Shakespeare, where there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I guess at least in um, in Deumbris Idearum, like there's a lot of uh, metaphor and additional imagery and additional stuff sort of sprinkled around in there, references and things that can make it kind of dense. But um, one of the books of his that you translated is uh, uh, De Magia, and you put it in this collection on magic with a, with a number of other essays. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this book? Sure. Uh, so Bruno wrote around seven or eight essays on magic, depending on which ones you categorize with that. But it essentially takes up the project of reforming magic uh, back to what it was in antiquity, which is something that if you are wise or a philosopher or someone who is knowledgeable, you would understand as the capability to understand the hidden workings of the cosmos. Whereas by the time 
either Agrippa or Bruno came about, the Catholic Church officially frowned on people practicing magic and thought that it was demonically influenced. Oh, I was going to say, do you think that um, Bruno's views on magic uh, differed greatly from Agrippa's? I think that it's a progression. I think that he took a lot from Agrippa and from Agrippa's contemporaries and teachers, uh, so Trithemius and um, Reuchlin and some of the others uh, who were of that era. And he was a person who was looking for a unified theory of how the cosmos worked. For one thing, he says, you know, Bruno was heliocentric. He was a heliocentrist, uh, followed Copernicus, followed Nicholas de Cusa, who was uh, another Catholic thinker of the time, believed in an infinite universe, believed in the infinite unfolding of God's creation. So there were other influences on Bruno, other streams of thought that were coming into Bruno that were not quite fully developed by the time Agrippa gathered his three books. The 16th century was a really interesting time for that because uh, Agrippa and Copernicus lived at about the same time, and their two big influential books were both published uh, either like right before their death or shortly after their deaths. So... Um, I don't know if Copernicus ever got a chance to read Agrippa, but Agrippa never got a chance to read Copernicus. Agrippa was well invested in in a sort of uh, Ptolemaic geocentric universe, uh, and it kind of pervades his whole uh, worldview, especially when it comes to like how magic works and um, and how sort of like the cosmos kind of like locks together, right? Like Agrippa's cosmos is a is a finite thing made of the you know the spheres and the planets and and the shell of outer stars um and his his magic seems to be really well tied up in that uh when you were going through on magic did you get a sense that um was bruno sort of like struggling with how a heliocentric universe might change all of that no i think when he was doing his magical work, he was following the sort of classical and post-classical model of the universe. And so he didn't really care whether the stars were, you know, tremendously far away, whether the earth revolved around the sun or vice versa. It, it just mattered like what the effects of all of these things were. So everybody believed more or less in astrology, right? Even the church, it was licit magic. So you could you could do astrological things as long as you didn't, you know, try to frame horoscopes for certain people, right? Because, for example, if you tried to throw a horoscope for the king, right, people would assume that you were trying to predict his death mm -hmm. and use that information to either murder him or, you know, provoke some kind of political change. So if you threw the king's horoscope and were not the king's astrologer, that was problematic. Same thing with the Pope. Um, but other than that, like people would have horoscopes thrown to um, 
to achieve medical diagnoses, right? You would find out what someone had based on what when they were born and where they were born and what that interaction was with the current conditions of the stars. So everybody thought this was, you know, a very high tech, like, you know, you had to do some real math to figure all of this out. You had to check the tables. The tables were thought to be good, right? So Bruno was operating in a world where, yes, he had this other framework that he believed, this infinite universe framework, the you know, where you have an infinite number of suns and planets. But as far as magic was concerned, it didn't matter, right? However the world was, right, it worked according to that system. Right? So you could use that to do things. Mm-hmm. And I think he was pragmatic in that way. That's an interesting way to look at it. I, I think about, you know, because uh, Agrippa's magic and Agrippa's stuff gets used a lot today. And I always think about how the heck do you explain a way that uh, Agrippa had this like geocentric worldview? Like, how do you make, how does that allow Agrippa to still be, you know, kind of useful and rev- uh, relevant You'll have to refresh my memory on this, but I'm certain I saw in this that you actually sort of point out in one of the footnotes, like, oh, this whole section is sort of adapted from Agrippa, or this is a summary from Agrippa, or something of that that nature. Right. So the main part of it that's from Agrippa are the spirit lists that are in On Mathematical Magic. And so... uh, Both Agrippa and Bruno take the universe in the in the magical sense and say you know there are three parts to it one of which is the elemental world or material world then there's the world of the planets which is celestial and then there is the world beyond that or within that that is the intellectual or spiritual world right and this is a division that goes back you know uh to Everything from Alkindes on the on the stellar rays to you know classical antiquity is that this is a division that's made you know even by Plato and Aristotle. This um, division of the which is why there are three books, right? One for each of those worlds. Likewise, for Bruno, there is this conception that uh, the intellectual world is a reflection of the other two worlds or that the other two worlds are a reflection of the intellectual world. And so he has a series of things where he says, okay, there are the ideas, the, the archetypes, the forms of Plato, right? And then there are the material things that, ref- that are reflections of those forms or vestiges of those forms. So a cup is a reflection of the cup, right? In mm-hmm. all caps, right? The, the platonic cup you know all shadows are a are an instance or a vestige of the one shadow that you know what shadows actually are on the ideal level and then there is the intellectual understanding or the mental understanding of this cup that you have seen previously and so you have a memory or an image of it that is different from the cup over there or a cup over here right 
but participates in the existence of both the ideal cup and the vestigial cup, the, the physical cup. So the image that you create in your own memory is related to both. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Okay. All right. Like that, that, that's uncontroversial even in modern science, right? Well, I know that. I was just saying it out loud. Right. But like, <laughs> you know, except that in, in the modern world, we don't have, you know, ideas, capital I, mm -hmm. right? Platonic ideals. We just have the physical and the mental. Right. Right. There is no essential or, or you know, super celestial place where those things are happening for, for most modern philosophy, modern science. Do we have, I mean, even in uh, Bruno's time, would, would that sort of like platonic ideal stuff have been a mainstream belief or was it something that uh, philosophers and, you know, university people were latching onto? It's difficult to say. Like it, it is, it is kind of, it is kind of an academic or intellectual framework or conception. Um, but people did think in terms of like species, right? They thought that like, you know, obviously all dogs resemble each other in some sense. And so are a species or there are different breeds of dogs. So larger than species, there is a genus or a kind, which are dogs or dog-like things, right? There mm -hmm. are, uh, you know, and then you could say all dogs. So there's a universal form of that, right? And if you right. say, well, all dogs, then you sort of say, well, how do you know they're all dogs? Like each one of those is part of all dogs, mm -hmm. right? And so like you as a person living in the 16th or 17th century might say, well, you know, there is like a dogness that they are all akin to in some way. They are all connected to this sort of central idea of being a dog. I have to say that uh, I'm going to give you the modern platonic gold star now. You have given me two examples of uh, sort of like platonic ideals or watching and all that sort of stuff without using a chair. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this might actually be the first time anybody's ever done that. It's it's interesting, you know, thinking of uh, Bruno coming across Agrippa's work. Like, we don't really... I'm not sure that we could ever really know how much Bruno would have known about Agrippa's life. Um, you know, since I assume, you know, because I think uh, Agrippa died in like 1535. Bruno probably didn't read any of his stuff until he was like at least like 15 or something, right? So that's right. a good, that's a good 30 plus years in between Agrippa's death and Bruno's, you know, exposure to his works. But it's it's strange to kind of think about what Bruno must have known about Agrippa and what he must have thought about him. It's like, I'm sure all of the tales, you know, of like Agrippa being a black wizard and studying black magic and, you know, having his weird magic dog and all that kind of stuff. Like he probably heard all of these legends. And yet uh, you also get this impression from Bruno that a lot of his focus on you know, his magic seemed to have so much to do with his imagination and his memory and his ability to sort of control those things and create those things. Uh, it's surprising to me, or I mean, maybe this is something that I just haven't noticed. Like, 
Did he latch on to those bits of Agrippa where Agrippa talked about the imagination or Agrippa talked about memory? And he did he consider those to be super important? Because they're they're in there. They're just kind of not many of them. Yeah, I think what's more true is that while while he would have had access to Agrippa and while he certainly read Agrippa, because as we mentioned, there are many quotes from him in there, uh, both of them were kind of looking at the same corpus of common works that would have mm-hmm. been accessible to anybody in you know the 16th and 17th centuries or you know even the 15th you know for example there's all of, there there are references both that you can find in in both of the works to Virgil or to Ovid or right all of these things that people would have read a lot of it was through Ficino. So Ficino, of course, was even earlier. Ficino's translations and commentaries on Plato, you know, as you'll know from the first Renaissance history class that you took, were what really kicked off the Renaissance in a big way, like culturally, and kicked off the interest in the reintroduction of magic as a as a thing that learned men especially men, would do. Right? And so you've got all these guys who are noblemen standing up on their rooftops, staring at the stars, and they, it kicks off the scientific revolution a couple hundred years later. But it's this reintroduction of Plato, um, partially through Ficino, but also partially due to embassies of Greeks from Byzantium coming to the West both to try and reconcile uh, the Eastern Orthodox and Catholic churches, but also to ask for help against uh, invaders from the East and from the North, right, that were pressuring the late Byzantine Empire. Yeah, uh, which didn't go so well, did it? No. In Bruno's case, for example, like he would have been taught Aristotle first, because the Western Latin churchmen were very big on Aristotle. He was, you know, the source of logic and of learning and all of this thing. And then along come these new translations and commentaries on Plato. And it was like, you know, the new thing. It was like, hey, this is the most exciting thing ever that, you know, Ficino brings over. And as those diffuse through Europe, right, you can see both an interest in the past, the classical past being reawakened, the pagan past in particular, right? And you can also see the ideas from Plato of the ideal world and so forth, you know, filtering back into and exciting the people who are doing new thinking, new thought, new writing at the time, mm-hmm. right? Again, this kicked off the Renaissance, yeah, uh, the 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 pagan um, imagery and the pagan stuff is is really interesting because uh, Bruno latches onto it very strongly. Like he uses a lot of um, you know classical imagery and classical references, uh, both in like building imagery and building like like his memory alphabets and his memory systems. Um, and it's kind of fascinating because he would have been doing this you know, years after Luther and Luther mm-hmm. had been so, uh, down on, um, 
on you know pagan imagery or even catholic imagery and like sort of this focus on imagery it's uh it's funny that because i mean we know that bruno originally learned his uh, mnemonic techniques when he was studying to be or when he was a dominican yeah right um and he kind of like went beyond that it's strange to think about and I know I've read done some reading, re- reading about this. Uh, like Mary Carruthers in her um, in her medieval art of memory has a bunch of uh, of monk memory practices that have been written right. down. Um, so, for example, the librarian of Bruno's convent mm-hmm. was you know he had rhymes for the titles of every book in the library that he had in his memory, you know, and so. But at the same time, there were also other things that people did. So Erasmus uh, had an idea that you should do these numbered outlines, right? And organize Mm. everything according to some written outline. Um, You know, in Diumbris Idiarum, Bruno goes through and sort of satirically puts down all of these other methods. uh, And makes fun of them, yeah. Right. And in 30 Seals, he has a passage where he describes a friend of his who was also a Dominican who was using this older technique called the Ars Notoria, which was, if not illicit, it was at least a profane thing where you are calling upon spirits to help you remember things and then meditating on some diagram. Mm -hmm. And, you know, supposedly that would teach you the seven liberal arts, you know, teach you to become wonderful at rhetoric or at uh, grammar or, you know, theology or anything. And then, and so he says, you know, he he studied these really hard and then he did that for a while and then he didn't keep up with it. And both he and his learning collapsed to the ground. Mm -hmm. So he's like, you know, this is a defective method. It's not, and also, you know, it's like the church didn't particularly like it. But, you know, it was still a method that was used. It was still a system of magic that was used, and it was explicitly a magical memory system. So Bruno compares his own favorably to those, right? All of those methods, or there were tonics that you could take, you know, where people now will say, you know, you should take uh, nootropic or smart smart drinks or, or something like that, or certain mm-hmm. teas having mushrooms in them. Or whatever people were trying the same thing, you know, four hundred years ago. Yeah, there were a lot of really weird recipes for uh, magic drinks. Um, we've got some great ones from the Greek magical papyri too, where you like, you know, you write a spell on a piece of papyrus and then you wash the papyrus and you drink the leftover inky water. Oh yeah, I'm sure it wasn't people toxic did that to at Bibles all. too. Oh wow. Well, yeah. I mean, you would pour water over a Bible passage and have a, an ill person drink it and suppose that it would promote their healing how do we relate that to like um people who use uh, pages of the bible to like roll uh doobies that's pretty close okay pretty close. that's what i was <laughs> so i guess maybe like a last question that i would have would be uh could bruno have uh or how about this? What would Bruno's work have looked like if he had never been exposed to Agrippa? Wow, that's tricky because... 
Yeah, that's a, that's a very tricky question. And like I said, a lot of the work, the thing that makes them resemble one another, part of it is that they are working from the same references. Mm -hmm. So they are looking at both the Bible and the uh, classical antiquity, and they are drawing from those in terms of customs, in terms of you know frameworks that people used. There are, as you said, um, these earlier works like On the Harmony of the World, right, which have a huge encyclopedia effect, right? And so Bruno knew about them. He knew about the Picatrix, as did Agrippa, right? He knew about On the Stellar Rays, as did Agrippa. Mm -hmm. So, like, all of the components are there, but what Agrippa does that nobody else does is he has this almost more accessible version of the thing in the form of an encyclopedia. So he does the work of filtering through, you know, all of Virgil to find the applicable passages where Virgil talks about, right, whatever you want to know. He mm -hmm. filters through Pliny on the natural history front and, you know, picks mm -hmm. out all of these herbs, which, you know, as Eric Perdue pointed out, like, you know, the people who translated uh, Agrippa out of Latin or uh, out of Latin into English, the guy who, who did that originally back in you know, the 1600s or whatever, yeah. had no idea or 15, I guess it was late 1500s, but he had no idea what half of the things were. I tracked some of that down. It ended up being pretty interesting. Some of the, or a lot of the uh, mistranslations of Pliny that we have uh, come from a contemporary of Agrippa who translated Pliny the Elder into German in like 1520-ish. Right. And then that German translation was kind of used as a reference translation when um, the the big English translation happened in the in the early 1800s. And so we got all of these mistranslations sort of carried forward through that. And the mistranslations that ended up in the English version, the early English version of Agrippa, I don't know. I mean, those were just the English dude, JF, whoever the heck he was. Yeah. The, so there are all of these, these translated herbs and animals and things, which are not quite sure what they are. Even the, even if we go back now with a whole group of, academic experts, right? We can't figure out what all of them were with certainty mm -hmm. and plenty. Yeah. Right? So you have these big gangs of translators and botanists and, you know, natural historians and what everything. And there are still some things where we're like, we don't know if this was just a nickname that he gave this animal or whether somebody told him a name in their own language, which was who knows what. And then, you know, the same thing with some of the other stuff in Agrippa. So if you read the Tyson translation, like the joke is, is that Agrippa is basically 99 uses for a civet cat. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, or, and you don't quite know what a civet cat is. Like, you know, it's, some people say it's a pole cat. Some people say it's right, something else, a particular breed or this or that or the other thing. And so you just imagine all of these early modern wizards with, you know, courtyards filled with these, you know, freaking civet cats. 
and like <laughs> boiling them down and taking bits out of them and doing all sorts of horrid things to them, right? According to these recipes in Agrippa. And you're like, you know, but but they're spectacularly useful in magical operations, whatever they are. Well, that was good. Uh, I, uh, do you think Agrippa has had any influence on you and your work? Oh, probably. I mean, I think, you know, in in the modern era, like, it's still one of the most popular, like, long-standing works. You know, and it's before the big, uh, you know, talismanic small publisher book explosion and the whole, you know, crowd of people who are retranslating things. This was like the one book that you sort of knew was like the not 101 level, uh, you know, not the, the Llewellyn introduction to basic witchcraft of the, you know, light a candle throw some flowers around school, right? <laughs> right. Not, not to make fun of that, but, you know, you know what I'm talking about is, like, there are yeah. a lot of these, like, very, like, very simple, inoffensive, kind of new-agey things, and then there's Agrippa, which had a reputation. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, the, you had, like, so many introductory books and nothing... Nothing in between... Yeah, yeah. And this, and, and you know, the translations like the Magus uh, from Barrett were like the kind of heavy-duty, very thick, you know, scary-looking things that were not, at the same time, they were not the the ones that had pretense to being satanic or diabolical in any way, right? And so mm -hmm. it was a, you know, it was a fascinating book when you were younger, and there wasn't a lot out. Many thanks to R.A. Priddle and Scott Gosnell for their insights into the influence of three books of occult philosophy. I have included links to both of their works and earlier interviews in the show notes. And by the way, the show notes for this episode are pretty big, so definitely check them out. We are finally at the end of a long, wild ride through Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's greatest work, De Occulta Philosophia Libri Tres. These past nine episodes have been both a delight and a challenge to work on, and I really hope that you have enjoyed our journey of learning and discovery through Renaissance magic, philosophy, and history. We followed Agrippa's amazing book from its roots in 15th century Florence through the Holy Roman Empire, the 19th century occult revival, and all the way to modern occultism in the 21st century. Now, though this series on Agrippa is at a close, the Arnamancy podcast continues. I sincerely hope that you return for season five, as I return to an interview format to explore Rosicrucianism, chaos magic, tarot, magical cooking, and of course, more werewolves. Until next time, keep reading books, keep being weird, and keep doing magic. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash 
Arnamancy. Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.